Dear listeners of the Secret Society of Fly Tires, I regret to inform you that the beloved host of this program has sadly met his untimely demise. That's right, you heard me. You heard me, you cowards. Marty is dead. He's dead and buried, and you killed him. He worked himself to death. I bet you didn't even know that was possible, did you? I bet you thought that was just an expression for when people are overworked. Well, that just further proves how ignorant you are. Millions of people work themselves to death every day, and Marvin died in his podcasting shanty, shivering cold, nude, and starving. He put his heart and soul into this, and now his blood is on your hands. I don't want to get into the gory details of his last few moments, but I have received permission from his estate to say that he succumbed to injuries he sustained while trying to tie an experimental fly of his own design that used a lot of human hair, meat, and teeth. Of course, being a scrappy and industrious man, Matt volunteered to use his own greasy flesh to create this beautiful fly, and I guess he took it all a little too far and pulled out a few more feet of small intestine than his body could spare. He wasn't a learned man. He could barely read. He didn't know that you need to keep all of your guts inside of you. He just wanted to inspire fellow anglers and inspire you listeners by creating a fly that could catch any fish in any water no matter what. I for one have seen a few of the flies he tied using his own innards and I was lucky enough to throw one on his home river after the funeral service as my attempt to pay homage to such an inspiring hero and let me tell you that not only did I catch my PB steelhead but I also caught two weird turtles, a bunch of suckerfish, a fig newton wrapper, a beaver's tail, and a snake that ended up biting my nose. Luckily it was only a mildly poisonous snake so I'm alright. I had to get a nostril surgically removed but I've got another and it's pretty big so I'll be fine. Enough about me though. I'm here to tell you that Mark is gone and he's never coming back because he worked himself to death in an attempt to entertain and teach you cretins a little something about the art of fly fishing and fly tying. I'll be the host of the podcast from now on and let me just say that things are going to be different around here. They're going to be real different. First of all, there will be no more discussions about fly tying. It's just too painful of a subject for me. I don't want to spend each episode weeping and vomiting into my hat out of sadness for my lost friend. Second of all, there will be a whole lot more discussions about alien spaceships and how we think they might be decorated inside. Think about it. They're aliens. They're super smart and wet and they've got technologies that we cannot comprehend. They have to have the sweetest blacklight posters of glowing mushrooms and skulls wearing jester hats. They have to have interior decorations that are well beyond our wildest dreams. So that's what we're going to be talking about in this episode and all of the other episodes that will follow. I've been lucky enough to get in touch with two portly gentlemen who agreed to speak with me about this topic and they have pretty in-depth knowledge about alien interior decoration because they both state that they've been abducted by aliens multiple times and the second guy we're going to be speaking with, Edgar, says that he got an alien pregnant. He says that he's never used a condom in his life for reasons that will make sense later. But before we get into that, let me just say that I'm kidding everybody. Hey everybody, I just made all that stuff up except the part about Edgar making unpredictive love to an alien queen. The rest of it was just a goof. Marty's fine. He's not dead yet. I didn't catch a bunch of stuff using a fly that he made out of his own guts. Everything's fine. I'm sorry I tricked you. I was just having a little
little fun. Mark's fine. He's just in the bathroom right now and he left his microphone out. And I'm actually a burglar who broke into his house and listened to all the past episodes of the Secret Society of Fly Tires. And I liked him so much that I decided to record this little thing as a fun prank. A calling card, if you will. I'm like the Wet Bandits from the Home Alone movie franchise, except I record stupid podcast intros while robbing people of their precious gems and rubies. But enough about me. Let's get this episode started. I hope you had fun listening to me because I had fun recording this. But now it's time for me to rummage through drawers and break into safes and whatever else burglars like to do. Thanks for listening. I love you. Goodbye forever. Hey everybody. Don't call the cops. I'm okay. I did not bleed out from trying to make a fly out of my own entrails. Just a joke. We made it. It's the 12th and final episode of the sophomore season of Secret Society of Fly Tires. I wasn't really sure how to wrap things up this time around, but my good buddy the worm had an idea that felt uncomfortable enough for me to agree to. A show about me, your host. Is this overdue? Does anyone want this? Yes, I want this. And I want more than that, Marcus. I guess the worm did. Anyways, you know me. I answer to Matt, Mark, Martin, Marty, Milton, and many other names that start with M. But the coolest and most important name I'm called is Dad. On today's show, the president of the Anti-Littering League, who also happens to be my firstborn child, is going to interview me. But before that, I'm going to write a bunch of words about myself in this show and then haul my podcasting equipment out to the garage to record it all. Then I'm going to get on YouTube and start ripping a bunch of clips to edit it together into my 24th podcast episode. That's how the delicious sauce is made. It looks so good! You're probably getting hungry just thinking about it. I'm fucking starving, Swiss! What did you eat today? I ate nothing! Nothing! I bet you're all salivating to know more about the mysterious man behind the mic. I am very interesting. My list of accomplishments is miles long. I'm close personal friends with so many famous people. Ariana Grande. Ariana Grande or Drake. What? Brad Pitt or Payne Stewart or Doug the Pug. Khloe Kardashian, the Red Tiger from Voltron. Fran Tarkenton, Joe Montana, Joe Montana. Eddie Murphy, Michael Jordan, Michael B. Jordan, BTS. Eugene Levy. I've been to every city in the world. I've tried every flavor and done every mind-altering substance. None of that is true, really. I just wanted to make myself sound cool. Did it work? Maybe it's finally time to just be the real me and open up a little. I've threatened that before, but there isn't really a better time than now, I guess. It's going to be a few months until I start season three, and I want a clean slate when we meet again. First off, I've been lying about recording these from the driver's seat of my Prius. You lie. Why do you lie? I stopped about halfway through the season because it got so hot in my garage and I don't have any meat on me. So my bones might cook if I stay in there too long and my marrow would ooze out to be slathered like human butter onto some toast points by my rich neighbors. Okay, that's a second lie that I wasn't even planning to address, but after I typed it out, I figured I should make it clear that my neighbors aren't rich and wouldn't eat my bone marrow. They're nice, polite people. Yeah, this is Duncan Cocker, your neighbor. I live nearby you and you guys are making way too much noise at night, you know that? I've been recording stuff from my bedroom, it's true. Oh baby, that's where the magic happens. I don't know why I felt like I needed to keep up that facade of recording from my car. 
my bedroom is air-conditioned, and there's a tiny bullshit IKEA desk that I bought for my supposedly temporary remote workstation a few years ago. Feels good to get that off my chest. I lie a lot on this show, and I can feel the weight of those lies lifting off me, so I'm going to continue the purge. Now, I haven't really lied about this so much on the show, but I want to be honest and tell you all that I've only caught three fish in my whole life. I've put in my thousand casts, and I've spent countless hours on the water, but I've only found the success that keeps us English going three times. And two of those fish were already dead, and one of them was actually a bullfrog that I caught on a giant weighted treble hook using my old spin rod in my parents' backyard. But I reeled it in, and we all know that counts as a fish on paper. While we're on that topic, I also want to come clean and tell you that I don't even like fishing. What? I've always been afraid of fish and their weird eyes and how they don't have any real noticeable genitalia and to top it all off, have you noticed they're covered in slime? I actually love slime for many reasons. But I love the hobby, so I decided to talk about it instead of really doing it, you know? I am actually a fly tire though. I'm not lying about that. You sure about that? You sure about that? You sure about that? I showed you a brief glimpse of the octopus fly I tied for the Mackenzie River episode trailer as proof. I can spend as much time as I want preparing to fish by tying up whatever flies I feel like pretending I'm going to need and use for the imaginary trip I have coming up. I really just like planning stuff, getting all my shit together and being ready to go, but not actually going anywhere. Maybe I'll start taking things a step further and actually drive to the river, but just sit there and look at it for a while before I drive home and tell my family that I didn't catch any fish again. The miles on my Prius will be all the proof I need. And once I lie about it on this show, there will be a public record that'll be believable to anyone that might look. See how easy it is to create your own history? I could never fish and never tie a single fly, and the podcasting world wouldn't know the difference. It's basically like the moon landing and the JFK assassination, and it's exactly like the Tartaria theory. So here we have the Antiquitech module, and everything in the old world was completely over the top. And we, as a people, inheritors of this past civilization, didn't know what to do with these. In fact, I'm starting to think that I might be a CIA plant myself, placed into this outdoor crafting community for the sole purpose of collecting as much information about the known alien hybrid Tom Rosenbauer as possible, with a side mission to record the names of any angler I see bypassing the proper receptacle and throwing their trash into nature. That list is then turned into the local game warden, who arrests everyone on said list and locks them up in prison for life. My daughter, obviously playing the role of my boss in reality, and also the head of the CIA's crafting and leisure investigations unit. Why don't you stop now while you're ahead? Okay, my mind wandered a little bit there. I can't say for sure that I'm not a fed, but my third grader is only the boss of my civilian life. I'll let her ask me the hard-hitting questions after I ran a little bit longer about me. I typically try and spend as little time on fly tying as I can in my monologues. But today, I want to share a little bit about the patterns I like to tie and inspire me to get better. I'll save the personal stuff about me for the interview. While trying to convince Fernando from my LA River episode that he should take the plunge into tying his own stuff to catch the wily carp of the Glendale Narrows, I mentioned that us very talented, physically attractive, and cunningly smart and creative fly tires typically focus on tying a handful of patterns that we actually fish with. I felt like one of the misconceptions of tying your own flies was that you were kind of obligated to learn certain patterns and tie them a certain way. I never rattled off the ones I actually tie and use though, so I'm going to give it a shot. I feel like these are patterns that have a lot of room for variation and can be used in several different situations. They're also easy enough for an idiot like myself to tie after practicing for a while and wasting precious materials. That is what we do. Waste stuff. 
It's where half of our materials go, in the garbage, or on my floor, or in my dog's mouth, or on one of my kids' art projects, or just thrown into some body of water. Definitely not into a fish's mouth, or stuck in their lip or down their throat though, because like I said, fishing is gross, and I rarely do it, and neither should you. What do you even have to prove? That you can hypnotize a wild animal into shirking all their natural instincts and give in to the temptation of a piece of fake food made out of string and feathers and maybe some lead and glue? Does that make you feel good? I hope so, because that's one of the main reasons we do this, right? I was joking when I said I have only caught three fish, I swear to God. Anyways, these are patterns that I like to tie, and I tell my wife and friends and even you strangers that listen to my show that I pretend to catch fish with these too. In no particular order, except for number one, because it's obviously number one. Farmer's Graboid Leech. Fucking duh. This is a leech. Of course, the best and my most favorite leech is on this list. I reference leeches in almost every episode of this show for some reason. This is what I had tied onto that weighted treble hook that I caught the bullfrog on that I told you about earlier. I'm kidding. It was just a weighted treble hook on 50 pound test. I love leeches. I hate my blood, and they can suck out every last drop of it for all I care. What are leeches anyway? It's one of the best flies. Fish actually love leeches more than I do. If you replaced all the water in your local river with leeches, all the fish would die. Not because they couldn't breathe, but because they would all eat themselves to death. Just like if you leave a bag of dog food open and in reach of a pug. They can't help it. Jonathan Farmer was my first guest. He'll always be on my Mount Rushmore of fly tires. He's a dude that really cares about his craft and also puts himself out there on Zoom to share his skills with anyone who's interested in spending some time with him learning. He is the only actual fly tying teacher I've ever had, and I plan on spending more sessions with him as soon as I have the time to. I'm not exaggerating when I say every fly he posts on his Instagram wows me. I don't really need to go into any details about fishing leeches or even the history of Jonathan's pattern. I already did that in Season 1, Episode 1. I will say that I love the movement and look that the Fly Tires Dungeon Kraken dubbing gives the Grabway leech. It's also hard to beat the strip of rabbit fur in the current, or squirrel zonker. That is my favorite fly tying term if you haven't noticed. I love to say it. Squirrel zonker. Squirrel zonker. Squirrel zonker. Someday, I'll interview my friend that processes raw squirrel pelts out in beautiful Alta, California. Here in beautiful Alta, California. Dig into that whole gruesome process. Anyways, the pattern and the materials used in it have tons of life. The graboid leech works just as great as a bug as it does a little bait fish too. I end up tying the mini meat graboid variation mostly, and I like to change up the way I finish it and sometimes use a bead or a cone or even some lead eyes. It gives me the confidence that you always hear anglers talk about when choosing a fly. The toughest part of tying this pattern for me is getting the braided line that you tie onto the shank and follow down the rabbit strip to the hook to sit where and how I want it to. If you want to bypass that step altogether, tie it on a tube. Ah, the leech. Go tubing, as they all say. Okay, number two, the hobo spay. Although I don't talk about it as much and don't have a bunch of audio clips saved up for it, I love this pattern almost as much as I love the leech. Maybe because it can pass off as a leech too? I should just do another episode on leeches. But really, this pattern is super simple and so versatile. I've always tied them on shanks, but will be tubing with them very soon. It's just some dubbing, a few feathers, and some flash, and it's a great confidence builder if you're a new tire. The Hobo Spay is easy to cast since the pattern is basically weightless. I'll let the creator, Charles St. Pierre, describe it for you. I wanted to create a fly that could be fished on the swing for steelhead and salmon year-round using a sinking oar full-floating line, named after two of my favorite northwest rivers, the Bogachiel and the Ho, and influenced by numerous northwest fly variations. 
This is the fly I designed to fill that somewhat tall order. The long and limp natural guinea, marabou, and lady Amherst fibers create incredible lifelike action and are dressed lightly to allow maximum depth penetration quickly and efficiently. Hey, that's what she said. The variations of a UV dubbed body create contrast and brightness inside the fly silhouette, while the body hackle supports the longer fibers for a broader silhouette and additional action. Because this fly uses few materials and is lightly dressed to create its profile and amazing action, it casts easily and efficiently with both single and double-handed rods. I usually don't have Lady Amherst, so I sub in more guinea or some schloppen or something. That's my second favorite fly tying term, by the way. Schloppen. 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 I keep telling you that you should do what you want. Improvise and tell everyone else to shut up. I love to swing a hobo spay and it will be on the list forever. Number three is the La Fontaine Sparkle Caddis. This is one of two nymphs that made my list. Again, this one is fun to tie in different sizes and colors and sub in or add different stuff. I doubt this or any of the patterns on my list are going to be new to the folks listening. Yep, me neither. I'm not tying up anything super obscure. I also tie mostly to fish my home water, the Lower American River here in Sacramento. We have some caddis and this pattern is a well-known producer. I like to tie these with a red bead and instead of a tiny little collar of dubbing, I will loop in some mink fur as the collar and add a couple strands of crystal flash out the tail. Tying in the mink is kind of a pain in the butt, but it looks cool and that's another reason we tie flies, right gang? Yeah, yeah totally. totally. Stop asking. We can make them however we want to. I bought all these different colors of mink zonkers one day at the fly shop too because they were out of pine squirrel and I am so obsessed with the mini meat graboid leech that I wanted every color of pine squirrel there was. And I couldn't just wait to order some so I bought a bunch of mink and it's not as good as a squirrel zonker if you ask me. Anyways, so am I even tying the La Fontaine sparkle caddis? That's what it started as, but then I did some other things, who cares? Gary La Fontaine does, that's who. He created this pattern and we should thank him for it. Here's a quick excerpt from flyfishingthesierra.com to give you some context about how much Gary cared. This pupa pattern was developed by Gary LaFontaine around 1974, subsequent to a three-year period in which Gary used scuba gear to study caddis within the Big Hole River of Montana. This fly pattern represents the caddis once it is in the surface film. Gary noticed that the caddis pupa were vulnerable only when the pupa was cutting itself free from its cocoon and under the surface layer where it splits its pupil shut. Gary found that only rarely will a trout feed or chase the pupa during its time of ascent. When the caddis pupa cuts from its cocoon, there's a 15 to 20 second period in which the pupa drifts along the bottom, generating gas to fill the sheath around its body. This gas produces a shimmering effect to the pupa. The ability to mimic this shimmer was critical to Gary's pattern, and he accomplished that effect by using antron fibers developed by DuPont in 1973. Number four is the Clouser Minnow. I did an episode on this one too. One of my favorite guests, Chuck Reagan. I picked Chuck for my Clouser episode because I loved fishing them from his boat for striper and picking his brain about them while doing it. He ties some awesome Clousers. So does past guest Hogan Brown and my buddy Ken Gotelli. So I've surrounded myself with positive influences when it comes to this fly. I don't tie them as much as I do the three previous patterns, but this is a no-brainer for all of us. Probably the best baitfish pattern on a global scale. It's simple, highly versatile, its only real rival in that regard might be the woolly bugger, which isn't on this list. Not because I'm too good for it, I just kind of never fish buggers. Maybe that's part of my overall catching problem. Freshwater, saltwater, big, small, bushy, sparse, and every color a fish can think of. I've heard that if it ain't chartreuse, it ain't no use though. 
Is that true? Yes, that has been scientifically proven. Clousers probably make every angler's list. Number five is Farmer's Avenger. Yeah, another farmer pattern on my list. That shouldn't surprise you. This isn't one of Jonathan Farmer's most famous patterns as far as I know. I've also seen people argue that it's a Klamath intruder, but it's not that. It might look similar on the surface, but it has its own thing going on. I purchased a dozen of these from Jonathan a few years ago, and they looked so sweet I barely wanted to fish them. It was my first big custom fly order, and receiving it in the mail was one of the things that really pushed me to tie my own stuff. I got to tell them what colors I wanted, and how big, and what hooks to use, and seeing them show up in the mail, along with a freebie purple mini-me graboid leech was like Christmas morning. Jonathan will call it a summer steelhead fly and a fall steelhead fly, but I call it an all-year, anytime fly. Have I told you that I like to swing steelhead flies? I do, okay? I fished a little sand crab variation of the Avenger in the surf once. It looked close enough. This fly taught me a lot. I spent an hour on Zoom with Jonathan, learning the ins and outs of tying this pattern, and learned the importance of using the right thread size and how it can keep your flies looking neat. I learned how to tie in ostrich better, and I learned some tricks on tying in silly legs better too. This pattern definitely made me a better tire, and I love to fish it. Is it a bug, or is it a fish? What the hell is it supposed to look like, a crawdad? It's kind of a theme of my list, versatile patterns. Mostly because I hate thinking too much about what fish might be eating and just want to enjoy my time on the water. I pick something that could be anything these idiotic fish might imagine. Whatever they might mistake it for on any given day. These might be the heaviest pattern on my list. They're good for getting deep. You don't have to tie them that heavy though. Remember how many times I've told you not to give a care and do what you want? Next pattern. Number six is Ching's Bloody Maria. I'm not sure how many people outside of Northern California are familiar with the Bloody Maria. Maybe everyone, and I'm naive. I'm not gonna fight you about it, or anyone. It's a little nymph pattern that just so happens to be the very first fly that I ever tied. It's used to catch American shad when they come up my local area rivers to spawn in the summer. The Sacramento fly angling community is lucky to have its creator, a man that I haven't had the pleasure of meeting yet named Jeff Ching. At least I think he created it? He posts an almost daily fishing report during the shad run on my fly shop's message board and willfully gives up all the data he collects. It's awesome and I look forward to it every summer. The fly itself isn't anything overly complicated. Another theme of my list because I'm not that good, okay? It's typically tied on a number 10 hook and consists of thread and tinsel or floss wrapped around the hook with wire wrapped around that, all on top of a little tuft of ice wing fiber with a few strands of crystal flash mixed in or something similar that sticks out as a tail. That leads up to the bead of your choice at the top that is finished with a nice collar of thread. It's usually got a bit of a taper that gets fatter towards the top. That's what she said. People tie it in all different color schemes, but the main one being red and white with green wire and a gold bead. I think every fly angler out looking for shad uses these around here. I'm going to interview Jeff one of these days because this isn't the only cool pattern that he ties. Number seven, and the last one on my list, is the Kryptonite Sculpin. Okay, this is a pattern that I purchased long ago from the OPST website and probably also tied by Jonathan Farmer at the time I bought it before he went out on his own with Midnight Sun Custom Flies. I've seen Trevor Kovich tie a sweet version on YouTube as well. And actually, I just pulled up the video I'm talking about and Trevor doesn't refer to it as the Kryptonite Sculpin. He just calls it a Sculpin. But it has the same materials from what I can tell. I'd love to take a class on this one too and really dig into it. 
It might be the most involved of all the flies on my list, but it's not overly complicated either. It's typically tied on a long salmon style hook or a shank and you tie in a bead into the middle or belly section of the fly to act as shoulders to prop up the materials in front of it. It's got a little rabbit or squirrel zonker strip and you're gonna have to make three loops along the way, add in some dubbing and the ostrich and then finish it off with some rabbit. I'd love to get Trevor on the program to pick this pattern apart and learn more about the Olympic Peninsula. I have extended the invitation, but can't rope him in. If you know him, please tell him that it would be cool to come on this dumbass show. Another theme I noticed as I put this list together is how many of these patterns are meant for steelhead and salmon, and how many of them were birthed in Alaska or on the Olympic Peninsula. I like what I like, what can I say? I'm not ashamed of that list. It's a damn good list, if you ask me. I agree, I agree, I agree, I agree. Honorable mentions go out to the generic soft hackles I'll tie on occasion, big two-station intruders that can be fun, and muddler minnows. Maybe next time I put this list together, it'll be all tubes. I'm getting into tubing, guys. Those are basically all the patterns that I tie. I can't say that I don't get a wild hair and see a pattern online that stokes me to get behind the vise. That definitely happens. Jim Sen's version of the town run certainly got me to do just that. I really don't see myself tying many dry flies anytime soon, or even many nymphs. There are technically two nymphs on my list, but my good pal Steve is a whiz at tying nymphs, and he'll always kick down some goodies when we hit the water. I just like the way I tie those two patterns better, Steve. And I barely think of those patterns as nymphs because I end up swinging them anyway. Get off my back, okay? Another one of my favorite things about being a fly tire is when you meet an angler that also ties, and you trade stuff with each other and share your creations. Hello there, fellow nerds. Everyone does things a little bit differently, especially amateurs like myself. It's interesting to see what other people tie, and what makes them confident on the water. It's extra cool when you're both on the same wavelength about that, and it just builds your confidence even more because there's someone out there that believes the things that you believe. It's like the secret little wink all of us conspiracy loons give each other when we realize we both know the moon landing was fake. Don't you get it? We're the same, you and me. We're the same. I'm gonna sound like a real nerd here, but I think I'm preaching to the choir when I say there aren't many things cooler than coming across a random flybrary near a fishing hole. A little patch of flies left by other anglers that they felt confident enough to share with other people. I should be more suspicious of them because I tie up patterns that are ridiculously bad for the sole purpose of leaving them for other anglers to find and hopefully laugh about. It's more likely that some crazy bum just takes whatever I leave on the flybrary though and surgically removes the rabbit or squirrel zonker and uses it to replace the eyebrow that they accidentally burnt or scratched off. But that is reality and I like to live just outside of reality in a world where I make other anglers laugh at my dumb jokes. See how this all comes together? I hope some gosh darn sponsors come together for this show. I am telling you. But I am telling you right now. I love all the fake ads that the worm makes for me. Hey everybody, today's episode of the Secret Society of Fly Tires. This episode of the Secret Society of Fly Tires. This episode of the Secret Society of Fly Tires. This episode of the Secret Society of Fly Tires. This episode of the Secret Society of Fly Tires. They might even be my favorite part of this stupid show. Do you even get that far? I throw them in at the very end of every episode and always wonder if people make it to that point. I will absolutely continue putting them there as long as the worm keeps his hourly rate reasonable. That will be $350. But I want some real ads. Ads that pay me real money or even just stuff. I want to be a disgusting product pig. I'll hawk almost any item. I told you before that I love infomercials and maybe that's the end goal here. 
I just become a weird-ass infomercial host. Be dialing! I can see it now. The main host on a channel dedicated to infomercials selling conspiracy-themed items with a headset mic on on some kind of elaborate set that changes depending on the product. It might be Dealey Plaza as I sell chunks of the grassy knoll. And then it switches over to me behind some demonic pulpit in front of a Moloch statue at the Bohemian Grove Pond, selling certified copies of the program from the cremation of care ceremony. Then it changes over to the basement of Comet Ping Pong, and this time, the products I'm selling are legitimate proof of... Attention. This show has been terminated. Logging off. Don't worry. They didn't get me. Yet. I'm still here. I got carried away as usual, and I didn't mean any of that. This is satire, of course. You know, it's not even satire. I'm just a mentally ill man in his early 40s that hosts a podcast about a hobby he enjoys that gets off topic a lot. I have a job and a family and a dog named Cookie Monster, and I mean no harm to anyone. Let me try to get back on track. So, my daughter is going to interview me for this episode. She's the real star. In fact, she has garnered more outside work from her appearances on this show than I have. She was offered legitimate voiceover work for a real documentary that turned out to be way too heavy for an eight-year-old to think about. But what about me? What about me? I'm supposed to be the star. I'm gonna be the next David Attenborough. Just you wait. I'll never have to wait in another line again. I'll never lift another utensil in my life, and I will have all of my meals fed to me. The neighborhood dads will all stop giving me swirlies and will instead give me gifts and ask if they can do my yard work. My talented daughter has been kind of a reoccurring guest on this program, mostly contained to the intros. She loves helping me with this show though and was very excited at the idea of interviewing me. After I told her the plan, she immediately ran to get her notebook and started drafting up questions. I was torn on how I was going to conduct this interview because I tend to swear and talk about some adult themes and I didn't want to hold back with any of my answers. I briefly thought that it might be funny to get her real-time responses to those type of things, but then I remembered that I want her to hang on to the innocence of childhood for as long as possible. My son may not be helping me with the show just yet, but he is the true heir to my podcasting throne. Or one of them is, at least. Maybe both of them. They are both lunatics in training, and they will inherit this show after the 5,000th episode. Or maybe I'll just let them fight each other for it. Hell, maybe I'll let them take over completely for season three, and I'll just sit back collecting the checks from all my new advertisers and sponsors. I'll be so rich in affiliate marketing cash, I might just pay for AI to replace me like the weird island boys are pretending to be a pair of Norwegian twins using advanced deep fake tech. We're not the island boys. We have zero tattoos. We don't rap. We don't live in Florida. We never swear. And we're always positive. <laughs> if the island boys have access to that stuff and use it to earn TikTok money, how good is the tech that the elites have now and what are they using it for? I'm gonna stop this rant now before I get off topic again. My kids are cool, what can I say? They are so cool that just having them convinced me I needed a vasectomy out of the fear that there was no way to outdo what I had already done. In all seriousness, how could I top them? Here's my daughter interviewing me for my own show. I hope this is good. Here I am, you lucky people. So, Dad. Why do you spend so much time making pretend bugs? The world is full of bugs. Are you too much of a coward to use the real ones?
Wow. That's your first question and you're already attacking me? I don't let you listen to these episodes and kids have a weird parent filter that prevents them from hearing words that aren't about watching YouTube or eating candy. So I guess I'm not surprised that you don't know the answer to this. I tie my own flies because I am a nerd. It's gratifying to catch a fish, but feels even cooler to say that you caught that fish using bait that you created using string and feathers and fur. I guess it makes me feel like I'm more than just a middle management office lifer. Like if we lost all the technology that we're used to, my fly tying skill might bring up my primitive survival rating from a 10% to more like a 12%. I also like having unique stuff. I've always kind of customized my music gear, and before that I would do the same with my skateboard stuff, and... I just like my stuff to be different than what other people have. I've always liked finding obscure bands and stuff, too. And I'm not a coward. It's illegal for dads to be cowards. Why don't you let me eat dessert for dinner every night, then? What does that have to do with being a coward? I don't let you do that because life is comprised of a certain amount of pain and suffering, and it's my obligation as your dad to make sure that you learn that somehow without actually hurting you. You have to battle through the sauerkraut to get to the ice cream. Then you grow up to love the sauerkraut and battle through things out of pure enjoyment of the fight, and you get ice cream whenever you want. If you ate dessert for dinner every night, you'd be soft, and I don't just mean chubby. You'd be a So is that why you make me eat clams and tomatoes for every meal? We're three questions in, and that's the best that you've got? Two food questions in a row? I don't make you eat clams and tomatoes for every meal. But every parent out there knows that clams and tomatoes in combination offer the best source of nutrition for a growing child. Those are also your first two words, and you wouldn't eat anything else. I simply fed you what you craved. Do you want me to let you starve? That's a great point, Dad. I can't get a job and buy my own supper because of stupid child labor laws, and I have to eat something. So, why did you decide to start a podcast about fly tying? I don't know. I guess mostly because I changed careers a couple years ago and missed the culture of my old job where I worked with some of my best friends. Every day we'd end up crying from laughing at very stupid stuff, and I was just trying to find a way to keep that going. My buddy and frequent collaborator on the show, The Worm, worked with me there too, so it feels kind of similar in a lot of ways. I guess I chose the topic of fly tying because I needed a vehicle or some kind of backbone for the show. I didn't want to start a show just about me. Who would listen to that? With so many fly fishing specific shows out there to pick from, I thought drilling down even more niche might help me stand out a little bit. I, uh, I hope it's working. Me too, Dad. Me too. So, what is the wettest you have ever been while fishing? What? 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 Okay, don't answer that one, actually. I have a better question. Who do you think you are, and what do you think you're doing? Listen, you little corn dog. that's two questions. And besides for allowing you to interview me on this show, I was also nice enough to literally create you from scratch. You're my little homunculus, and I shouldn't validate your attitude by giving you an actual answer. But I'm going to. I think I'm still a 15 or 16 year old punk, but the harsh reality is that I'm a 42 year old working towards retirement in a government job. I dedicated almost two decades to trying to make it as a musician before it became obvious that it wasn't a realistic goal anymore. I got pretty close too, but in retrospect, I feel like that was all a series of trials preparing me for being your dad. Every brutal, money losing DIY tour playing to mostly empty rooms that I booked. Every weird promoter that I tried to settle up with at the end of the night that thought a guarantee meant that our band would guarantee enough paying attendees to pay me the money that we agreed to before booking the show. Every weird bathroom stall with no door or a bead door that I had to take a dump in. It was all building me up to be able to roll with the punches of fatherhood. Now my creative outlet is this podcast and there's way less risk. The only thing I lose money on is paying D-list celebrities on Cameo to record intros for my show. 
I also think of it as a nice permanent audio record that I hope you can still access after I'm gone to remember where you got your lunacy from. Ah, thanks, Dad. That's very sweet. Next question. Who died and made you president? Jesus Christ. Okay, I guess you can't answer that one. So I'll move on to my next question. What gives you the right? The right to what? To take away your Kindle if you keep making a mockery of this interview? These are actually questions that I collected from your listeners. Don't blame me. You really think I'm going to believe that? Fine, let's hear the next one. No prob, Dad. Let's see. Here's one from a loyal listener. Benny Liquid from Winnemucca, Nevada wrote in, Where do you get off? Yeah, that sounds like a real name. Should we just end this interview? Sorry. Okay, that one was actually a joke by me. That was the only joke question, though. Here's a real one, sent in by someone named Hoyt Herringbone, who didn't say where he lived. His question was, what's the big idea? You think this is really funny, don't you? Yes, I do, actually. Oh, here's another question. This time from one of the three girl listeners that pretend to like your show. Darla Clacker says that she's our new neighbor and got your contact info from the post office. She wrote in to ask, Can I have your social security number? you, Darla. I guess I should be proud of your determination to keep this joke going for your own amusement. You got that personality trait from your Uncle Jerry, and I love mocking people, so I know the joy you're feeling right now. Okay, I'm sorry for messing with you and embarrassing you in front of your imaginary friends. I promise I'll stop. Wink, wink. Here's a real question that came in from a longtime listener, first-time caller named Camacho. Camacho wants to know, how do you sleep at night? Oh, you're taking call-in questions now? That's enough. I'm going to ask you some questions. How many kids at school make fun of you because you have such a big nerd for a dad? All of them. You would say that. If you could be a fish, what kind would you be and why? I'd be a starfish so I can eat clams all day. Because I really want there to be more goldfishes in the ocean. And they're so pretty. So And they're pretty rare. That's why. That was weird. Okay. But I like that answer. Do you wish that I had a cooler hobby? And what hobby do you wish I had? Yeah, watching TV with me. So what do you think I do at work all day? Type on your stupid computers. Boring. And how much money do you think I make at work? A million dollars. Uh, 3,000? 3,084? Things just got weird there again, but whatever. Okay. If I caught a bunch of fish and brought them home and put them in our pool, would you swim with them? Duh, I love fish. Okay, this is the last question. What do you think you'll be doing when you're my age? Well, for starters on the job, I think I'll be sitting here doing this because you passed it down to me. Thanks for doing this, kiddo. I love you, even if you were trying to make fun of me the whole time. I love you too, Daddy. Should we end this interview now and go get an ice cream cone? Yes, we should. End it. Now! Thanks for listening, everybody. I had a lot of fun putting this episode together and recording it with my daughter. Isn't she the sweetest? And a special thanks to my buddy the worm for giving me the idea. That wraps up season two. Twelve more episodes in the can. I want to take a moment to thank all of my guests that were cool enough to spend time with me and yap about fly tying and ghosts and stuff. It really means a lot. Thank you. Thank you, all dear friends. It's always a little nerve-wracking interviewing a stranger, but that has been part of my grand podcasting scheme. It feels good to work through your own mental obstacles, and it led me to making a whole bunch of new friends all over the world. 
Thanks to the Hermit Boys, Britta Fordyce, Landon and Zach from Honey Hole Hangout, Patrick Kilby, J.D. Ritchie, Charlie and Roxy from Axiomatic Fly Fishing, Drew Wilson, Mario from Taco Fly Company, Jeremiah Houle, Fernando Vasquez, and Jim Sens. I can only be so lucky to attract the same level of guests for next season. I already have some folks in mind, so keep your fingers crossed for me. You know, I started this season in a pretty dark place. You might not be able to, but I can hear it in my voice if I listen back to the Hermit Boys interview from the first episode of the season. I talked to them right after the new year and one of the hardest months of my life. I didn't really want to do anything, but I knew that throwing myself into something creative would probably help. On top of that, I had just begun weekly therapy sessions and some medication. I was basically just waiting and praying that all these efforts would start paying off. And it really is work. If you've ever been in a cave of depression and found your way out, you know it's true. And your brain is fighting you and doing everything it can to convince you not to put in that effort. You have to beat the shit out of your own brain and overcome that darkness. I'm not an expert at anything, but I feel like that is some solid advice from a dude who used it himself and is in a better spot because of it. I can't say for sure what helped more. This podcast and seeing that there were some people out there that thought it was interesting or funny or the medication and therapy. I don't really care either. I'm just glad something has worked. I can say truthfully that I'm in a much better spot at the end of this season than I was when it started, and I owe a good percentage of that to this dumbass show, my guests, and all of you that listen. Stay tuned. I'll be back in a couple months. I'll try and post some things on Instagram during the downtime, and maybe I'll even upload a bonus episode. Now I'm going to drop in the info that I've shared after every episode of Season 2 one last time. Smell you later, suckers. Project Healing Waters brings a high-quality, full-spectrum fly fishing program to an ever-expanding number of veterans in need at over 200 locations nationwide. Project Healing Waters programs meet regularly throughout the year with volunteers teaching the basics and advanced techniques while building long-term relationships. It's much more than a one-time fly fishing trip. The program provides basic fly fishing, fly casting, fly tying, and rod building classes for participants whose skills range from beginners who have never fished before to those with prior fly fishing and tying experience. All fly fishing and tying equipment is provided to the participants at no cost. Fishing trips, both one day and multi-day, are also provided free of charge to participants. Visit projecthealingwaters.org to learn more. Fishing the good fight is breaking down walls, smashing taboos, and building community. They believe that experiences in nature are an important part of caring for one's mental health. Less than 20% of men struggling with mental illness and or substance abuse are receiving professional support. The combination of a healthy therapeutic outlet, talk therapy, and a strong community will lead to mental well-being. Men face specific challenges when it comes to addressing mental health issues. According to Mental Health America, 6 million men living in the U.S. suffer from depression. In a National Center for Health Statistics studies, nearly 1 in 10 men reported experiencing some form of depression, but less than half sought treatment. 70% of all people who die by suicide are men. It's from the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Men are often reluctant to seek help, particularly for depression, and are far less likely to access professional mental health services than women. Men make up less than 25% of people treated for depression and or substance abuse. For a lot of men, fishing the Good Fight program, such as a retreat, is the first time they have opened up about the struggles they faced, and 100% of men who attended a recent retreat indicated that they would seek professional help after the treatment. If you've ever wondered about your own mental health and wanted to improve the quality of life, 
Fishing the Good Fight can provide the tools, resources, and support to guide you along your wellness journey. FishingTheGoodFight.org has more information. This episode of the Secret Society of Fly Tires is brought to you by Podcasters Lip Salve, the only lip salve developed by industrialists and marketed toward podcasters. Do your weird gummy lips get all chapped and cracked when you're podcasting? Do you bleed from the corners of your mouth because you're flapping your stupid gums and recording it and putting it on the internet for almost nobody to listen to? If you answered yes to either of these questions, then why don't you stop being a complete idiot and buy yourself a tub of Podcasters Lip Salve? This salve is is medicated and moisturated and has mild hallucinogenic effects when ingested. It's not meant to be eaten, but if you eat it, you'll see some weird stuff. You'll be confronted with some harsh truths. I can tell you that much. Podcaster's Lip Salve, exclusively available at a merch booth at Monster Truck Rallies. Hey everybody, today's episode of the Secret Society of Fly Tires is brought to you by Worm Tutorial. Worm Tutorial proudly brings you fresh, innovative tutorials for anything you could ever want. Head on over to wormtutorial.com and learn more today and become the best worm you can be. Worm Tutorial, a family company. Please note that this is not a real advertisement and the company, brand, entity, or product mentioned in the preceding ad in no way endorses, agrees with, or knows about this podcast.